1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome to ARK's For Your Innovation podcast. That's FYI. Today, we've got an excellent guest, Saman Farid, who's the CEO of Formic, a robotics as a service company. Welcome, Saman. Sam, thank you so much for, for having me. Really excited to be here. All right. So what, where is the first place we start when we talk Robotics as a service what What does that even mean? I think the main
0: thing that matters about robot as a service is that we traditionally think of robots as like a piece of equipment or some kind of hardware that you buy, and the reality is that 's actually not what it is, and that 's also not what people are interested in buying. What people are looking for is some kind of outcome uh, that outcome could be you know, boxes moved onto a pallet, that could be some kind of welding seam being done. It could be the delivery of food on the road. It could be, you know, a hundred other things. But when we talk about robots, uh, the problem is that they're kind of a means to an end. And I think when there's a lot of focus and emphasis on the robot itself, we miss the forest for the trees. And we end up thinking a lot about, well, what does it have this feature or that feature? Does it have this camera or that end, end effector? when the reality is what most people need when it comes to robots is the output. I think most providers of robotics until now have been providing the intermediary, which is the hardware. And there aren't a lot of companies that are out there providing the output. And uh, I think that's where robot as a service comes in. It's a you know, obviously comes from software as a service, but but I think the real thing about as a service is that it it drives adoption, right? If you think about the first kind of major wave of software as a service, like you know CRM was obviously the, you know the most obvious one, but I like the example of email because there used to be a time where if you wanted to have email for your company, you would have to hire uh, somebody to do IT for you. You'd have to buy a bunch of servers. You'd have to buy internet bandwidth, you'd have to install all of that in server racks, you'd have to pay somebody to configure it all. And then after all of that effort and investment, you finally had email that you could use. And as a result of that, there was just no adoption, right? Like 95% of people in the world said, it's not worth it. I don't need all of that. And it wasn't until it became productized and it turned into a service that really you see kind of adoption happen at scale. And I think that's exactly what we're hoping for in robotics. Is that uh, moving to this kind of outcome focused mindset and mo- outcome focused product offering is what will unleash adoption and what will drive adoption at large scale not at the scale of like most robotics companies today and you talk to them they're at the order of you know 10 robots here 50 robots there maybe you know the really extreme cases they have hundred robots in, in one or two facilities but we're talking about you know what is it going to take to get on the order of magnitude of hundreds of thousands or not, if not millions of robots deployed, it takes a
2: totally different mindset and a different approach. And so before we dive into the, the factory itself and, and what you're seeing, different applications there, maybe we start, start with the macro. And are you seeing any sort of inflection point here? When we talk about uh, disruption, we normally say disruption and innovative technologies take hold during tumultuous times. And, you know, COVID, definitely a tumultuous time. We have, you know, supply chain shortages, definitely a tumultuous time. And we have wages that are increasing, making, you know, the economics for automation better. Are you seeing more companies use this to change the way that they're thinking about things?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think all of the things you mentioned are are tailwinds that are driving adoption in robotics or I should say those are all things that are driving the demand for robotics, but they're not actually driving adoption because it's been so hard. It's still so hard to get robotics deployed, but the demand is, is, you know, the, what you mentioned around kind of supply chain challenges. I think there's a few different layers of that. Even before COVID we saw the trade war and that trade war really pushed a lot of American manufacturers and American users to, realize that they're very dependent on this global supply chain. Everything from tariffs to shipping to, you know, disease can totally disrupt their, their ability to procure goods. And so I think the first wave of that, you know, started with the, with, the, with the trade war between the U.S. and China, and it pushed a lot of manufacturers to want to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And then, and then COVID, I think, accelerated that even further when they realized that all these factories in the U.S. are... Short-staffed and getting even more short-staffed. But this is also a problem that ha- ha- has been in place bef- since before COVID. There are, I think, one and a half million unfilled manufacturing jobs in America today. Not to mention all the other types of jobs that go unfilled. You know, farm workers and construction and uh, you know the skilled trades. You know, in every industry, you see an extreme shortage of labor, and that shortage of labor by itself. Uh, uh, you know, is one part of the problem, but it's also part of a vicious cycle because uh, a shortage of labor uh, leads to lower utilization. So like a typical factory in America runs two to 3,000 hours a year. That's out of 8,600 possible production hours. So they sit idle 70% of the time. So as a result, like every forklift, every truck, every CNC machine, every uh, light bulb in that factory is sitting around collecting dust 75% of the year. So as a result, you know, that factory has to charge higher prices for their goods. Those higher prices lead to less demand. Less demand leads to even lower utilization. And so you get this vicious cycle where it becomes harder and harder to compete, unless you change some of the fundamental inputs to that equation. So like demand on manufacturers is going up, but they're unable to meet it. And that's why you see all these delays, right? Like every there's a there's a everything shortage in America today, right? And if from from metal parts to aircraft to, to food to, you know, we, like anything you want to buy, there's there's a wait list. And so what we're thinking about as, as, as our company at Formic is like, how do we use robots to change that fundamental equation and solve some of those like inputs that, like you said, are tumultuous right now, but they're not just tumultuous right now. They're on a trend line of getting worse and worse, and we have to change the elements of that equation before we can get, get out of this kind of tumultuous environment.
2: Very interesting. And then, so going into the factory, maybe some anecdotes of, you know, some manufacturers who are, who are having issues. Uh, I guess, what are the, what are the barriers to robot adoption? You know, where, where has been an instance where you've gone in, tried to automate and it hasn't worked, we're not there yet. And then, you know, where has it worked extremely well, and kind of the the bread and butter at the moment? The thing that we hear at basically every customer, every factory that we go to,
0: is that they've been trying to automate for the last 10 years uh, and haven't been able to. And the few fundamental reasons for that are, one, there's a significant amount of knowledge that you need in order to adopt automation in a factory. You need to know what type of tasks in your factory are suitable to automate, which is by itself very difficult. Then you need to, once you've identified the task, figure out what are the different components of that task and how would you automate it. You need to procure all of the different like, pieces of equipment that you need in order to do that, which means you need to shell out hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars. And then you need to you know, hire a variety of different vendors to customize it, program it, build end of arm tooling, Install it on your floor. You know, install compressed air lines, install power lines. You know, there's like a hundred different things that go into getting the robot working. And then once it's, once you've got it installed and once you've got it running, chances are your need as a factory changes over time. Like you're running this part this week, you're running a new part in three weeks, and then in in every every few years you have to turn over your factory and you may have to do different kinds of products. And so a lot of factories end up with lots of equipment that sits in the corner collecting dust because they bought something that they needed a few years ago and they don't need it anymore. So either it collects dust or they sell it for scrap. And so it ends up being, you know, very high bandwidth, very high complexity, very risky because you could buy the wrong thing. And, you know, most of all, very, very expensive because you shell out, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions of dollars. There's a very big kind of information asymmetry between you as a factory and, a, and, a, and somebody who's trying to sell you equipment because they want to upsell you. They're like, oh, you should get this feature and that feature and get a bigger robot and get more robots. And, uh, you know, they don't care because once you bought it, you
2: may or may not need it, but they've already made their money. You've aligned the incentives much better, I guess, as as a solution provider. That's the goal. Yeah. So, you know, we came in and said,
0: hey, you know, these manufacturers may not be experts in robotics, but we are. So we know what to buy and we know how to buy it and we know how to install it and we know how to customize it and it's cheaper for us to buy it for everybody and manage it for everybody than it is for them each to try to do it themselves when they're not robotics experts. And we've proven that thesis to be true because, you know, like I said, a lot of our customers have been trying to automate, have been wanting to automate and never got around to it or were not able to execute on that plan until we came along uh, and we put in we were very proud to you know for a lot of our customers we're the first robot that they ever installed. And what happens often is once, we see, once they see one robot working, they come back to us and they say, Hey, I have like 10 other things that I need to automate. Can you please come and automate it? Then what we see start to happen is actually some of our customers used to run one shift a day because they could only hire enough people to run one shift a day. And then once we put in some robots, they suddenly are able to go up to two shifts a day, and maybe eventually three shifts a day. So they doubled, if not tripled, the output of their factory with the same amount of labor. And that double or tripling of the output is actually more than double or tripling their profits because most of the costs of a factory are fixed costs, not variable costs. So all of those fixed costs stay the same, but you're suddenly selling double or triple the amount of product. Naturally, you see your kind of profits start to go up very quickly. Uh, And so it's a business proposition that's an immediate win for a factory, and uh, we do it for them without them having to come up with a bunch of capex, without them having to hire a bunch of new you know, robotics experts or, or engineers, without them really having to change much of their production line. Uh, they literally point at the few things that they want automated and we come in
2: and, and solve that for them. Great. So then back to part, I know it's a multi, multi-pronged multi question there. Uh, so where what, what type of tasks have you had the best success automating and, and which ones are still Areas where you know we're not quite there yet.
0: The short answer is um, the most common tasks that we've seen are number one is palletizing at the end of a production line. Doesn't really matter what you make. There's usually somebody taking that product and putting it onto a pallet. So that's a really easy one to automate. There's a lot of machine tending. So that's robots that load and unload some other piece of equipment. It could be a CNC machine. It could be a spot welder. It could be a press. It could be Uh, a plastic injection molding machine, you know, but there's robots that basically load and unload other pieces of equipment. There's a lot of robots that do different kinds of packaging. So things like case packing, Um, there's robots that that we've deployed that do things like welding. Uh, So welding is a really common need in a lot of metal fabrication. And then the other common one is inspection. Inspection is one where a robot actually really has a significant advantage when it comes to, speed you know we have customers where manually it would take 2 to 3 hours to inspect a part uh, because there's so much detail that you have to inspect and a robot with the right vision system can inspect that part in 10 minutes and so you get this kind of order of magnitude
2: increase in uh, in output capacity and then i'm wondering you know I, I looked at your site right you're you're obviously you know using all of the big robot manufacturers. You've got ABB, FANUC, but you also have universal robots, right? And I think, you know, when we started doing research on robotics a few years ago, you know, kind of the big trend that we see is collaborative robots, robots that can work side by side with humans, being able to help out these small batch manufacturing companies where, you know, most manufacturing happens or most manufacturing workers work in those types of environments. And, you know, it was four traditional robots, about a third of the cost is the actual hardware, a third is, you know, the peripherals, and a third is actually hiring someone to set it up. And this promise of, you know, using AI, being able to train these super easily, you know, we're not there yet, obviously. Uh, But what's kind of the dynamic that you're seeing in the use of collaborative robots versus, you know, more traditional, caged off uh, industrial robots?
0: Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, it's been uh, a line that we're straddling. You know, we're, we, we do uh, applications that fall into both categories. Collaborative robots are really great for environments, like you said, where people have to interact with that robot or where there's um, space constraints uh, because you don't have to put in all the safety fencing. And you don't have to put in as many uh, like light curtains and things like that to uh, cordon off the area. But collaborative robots right now have a lot of limitations when it comes to payload and speed. And so for some tasks, that's not a problem. Uh, and for some tasks, you end up kind of hitting that, that upper limit where it may not make financial sense to uh, implement it unless you, you switch to an uh, industrial robot. So I would say, you know, I think, I think the hype around collaborative robots was a little bit overblown in the sense that they don't really unlock a lot of new business value as much as people thought it did. There are obviously some use cases where collaborative robots are perfect. Uh, but, but today, I think there's still a lot of applications where industrial robots just outperform collaborative robots so much. Um, so yeah, I think you know we, we obviously use both depending on what the need is. There's also a lot of really cool technologies that are coming along that make it possible to use uh, industrial robots in a collaborative way. So one example is a company that I'm on the board of uh, called Veo Robotics, Uh, and they've built uh, a a camera based solution that watches the environment around an industrial robot and using those cameras is allowed is is able to account for any kind of safety issues. Uh, And that allows a human to work in very close vicinity to a very, very heavy, very high payload uh, industrial robot. So that's the kind of thing that I think technology is starting to enable. And the lines between those two are blurring um, more and more. And I think eventually we'll get to the point where every robot by default is collaborative and not just collaborative between robots and humans, but more importantly, collaborative between robots and other robots, because uh, you're going to have AGVs coming in and out of those robot work cells. You're going to have multiple robots working in concert to get tasks done. And they need to be inv- uh, aware of their surroundings and their environment uh, in order to collaborative, uh, collaborate effectively. So I think that there, there's a, we have a ways to go uh, from a technology perspective, but I think like we now have seen enough to know that that path is 100% going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Uh, it's no longer a question of like, oh, well, you know, we don't really need cameras on robots. Like I think that, that question has been answered and, and it's necessary.
2: Great. So let's let's go ahead and, and look into the future here. Because it does seem, right, the the hardest part, as you're saying, is the implementation, the training, right? Once you get it set up, you know, maybe you need something else. So how far along that path of uh, ease of implementation, using AI or ML from a robotics standpoint to say, okay, here's a task, here's the, you know, vision, algorithm, we know what we need to do here. And we're not going to shut down this line for three months while we pay someone, you know, $100,000 to program this machine.
0: Yeah, I think um there are some tools that we've started to see that make that process easier. But this is an area that I personally am really hoping that more people start to work on. Because there are some people who have, like there are some tools that already exist, right? I think Ready Robotics, for example, has built a tool that makes it a lot easier to program robots. There are companies that have built tools for robot simulation. You know, we use tools like RoboDK and Octopus and others that make it very easy to uh, validate a solution in the real world. Uh, sorry, in the virtual world before you build it in the real world. Um, And so like each of those things knocks off some of the risk and some of the cost of getting a robot deployed. But there's still a lot in there that we needed to build ourselves in order to get robots deployed fast. So, for example, traditionally, if you were a factory and you wanted to deploy a robot, you would have to pay somebody to come in. And they would basically take, you know, weeks usually to measure a whole bunch of stuff in your facility and figure out what all the equipment is that they would have to interface with. Uh, Just that data gathering process was a week, you know, multiple weeks of time. Uh, and we've developed a, a relatively simple tool, but basically now whenever our team goes on site, we take a LiDAR scanner you know, attached to a couple of cameras and we scan that, that customer facility uh, and we have a 3D model. So we don't waste any of their time. We don't disrupt their operation. We come back and basically overnight, we could try out a hundred different robot models that may or may not work in that environment. We figure out, you know, like what the motion studies are, what interfa- what equipment they have to interface with. And we can basically the next day come back to that customer and say, uh, look, here's what a robot might look like. Here's the throughput that we think we can achieve. Here's the size, that uh, the footprint it's going to take. Here are all the constraints. Um, and that by itself, like significantly shortens the amount of time to get a robot deployed. Uh, so that's like on the application scoping part. Then obviously there's the next phase, which is like, if the customer decides to do this project, like we have to build that robot, we have to simulate that robot in the work cell, we have to generate all the programming for the hardware. Uh, We usually have to build some custom end of arm tooling and things like that. So that's also a process where we're building a bunch of software to automate that as well. But for most of these things, like our hope is that if somebody else builds the software, like we would much prefer to use something that somebody else has built than to build it ourselves. But, Right now, a lot of the things that we're describing around, like making it easy to deploy a fleet of robots, other people haven't really built well yet. And then like, once the robot is deployed, you know, we obviously have to monitor it. We have to maintain it. We have to be able to remotely log in and do some teleoperation and resolve issues. And all of those are things that we've also had to build some of ourselves. But, you know, I think this is one of those things where there's a hundred little building blocks that you need in order to get a completely different outcome. Uh, and we are just kind of chipping away at that problem piece by piece by piece.
2: Yeah, it makes sense, you know, definitely what you're saying. And it kind of leads to, you know, obviously you want to defend your uh, intellectual property with becoming experts in all of these various ways to set up various automation. But the need for the community to really come together and you know, put out solutions and best practices as the industry is still emerging. Which I always find fascinating, right? It's like robotics started really seriously in the 90s in manufacturing and the auto world. And we're still so early in in that broad automation landscape, especially from a, a hardware side of it.
0: Absolutely. I think that there are technology problems that need to be solved, but more importantly, there's also a lot of very big kind of business alignment challenges that need to be solved. And I think it's not until both of those things that solved, uh, are solved that we'll see this kind of you know, wave of adoption. But the technology is happening. You know, We've already talked about a few of the examples. Other people are building a lot of great stuff that we that will make it easier to deploy robots. Um, and then there's the kind of business
2: problem that we need to solve as well. Uh, I think those two pieces go hand in hand. Yeah, I'd be interested to dive into the business side. right? Because formic there've, there've been other robotics as a service companies that have, have tried to do it. I think each in its own unique way. Um, so, you know, as, as you're running Formic, what have you had to pivot? What have you realized, you know, what, what were the assumptions going in and how are you thinking about it currently?
0: Yeah. Um, I think that there have been, um, robot as a service companies and, and we, you know, as in, when I was a VC, we invested in a bunch of robot as a service companies and I'm on the board of a few of them. I think that the challenge with robot as a service companies is that, traditionally it's been somebody who makes some kind of robot decides that, well, I have two ways of getting people to pay for it. Either they can pay for it upfront or they can pay for it month by month. But either way, you know, I'm building this thing and I'm selling this thing. And I think that falls short in a lot of ways from the true promise of robots as a service. Because first of all, the customer doesn't know what they need. right? And so if you're coming in and saying, hey, I have this widget, do you want it do you want to pay for it up front or do you want to pay for it? like it doesn't, it's not really truly as a service as a service means like I, you abstract away the complexity of the choice and the decision-making and all the maintenance and management, uh, and you turn it into a real service offering. The second part is that I think there's also a fundamental mismatch in the DNA, uh, of those types of companies with each other. So I like the example of Boeing. Uh, so Boeing back when it started was both an aircraft manufacturer and an airline, like they had to do both of those things together. And then eventually those two things had to split up and Boeing became Boeing, the aircraft manufacturer, and the airline became United Airlines. And it's a, it's a completely different skill set to manage and maintain and run a fleet of airplanes and to sell tickets and to have, you know, loyalty programs and to, you know, do in-seat video and like all the things that you need to make a great airline experience is very different than the skills that you need to build aircraft, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think it's rare that those two things are, are in one company. And so what we're seeing for the robotics world is similar. It's like there are a lot of people who are making aircraft, you know, for, for, you know they're building robots of different sorts. And we see that number of customers, uh, companies doing that going up exponentially. Every day, there's a new robot that makes, does X or does Y or does Z. And we're really enthusiastic about that. But we, as a company, have kind of adamantly decided that we're not in that camp. We're in the other camp. of We're the, we're the airline, right? Like we run and operate and maintain a fleet of aircraft, uh, of robots, sorry. Uh, and, we, and we operate them to generate outcomes for our customers. And there's a lot of things that you have to do in order to, to do that well. And that's, you know, it's like it's just two different kind of sets of DNA. And I think uh, what we'll see little by little is companies will have to ultimately pick one or the other. Like either you're building a new device and a new piece of equipment or you're operating that equipment and generating value out of it. It's hard to do both. The same thing happened in in almost every industry. If you look at, you know, Caterpillar, like they make agricultural equipment, they don't run farms, right? Uh, uh, All the companies that make mining equipment don't operate mines. Like it's like two separate things. Like
2: one is you make equipment, one is you operate equipment and it's just a a different business. Interesting. Uh, And then on that standpoint... You know, are you seeing any particular robot manufacturer with better technology? I think it's interesting that robotics has always been, you know, somewhat. It's not. It's definitely not a winner-take-most environment. You know, most hardware is not that. Uh, But as we transition to you know more software-defined robots, uh, are you seeing? Are you seeing anyone you know with outsized capabilities there or not yet?
0: I think we are at the beginning of the explosion of robot vendors because it used to be, like you said earlier, like 90% of robots went into auto manufacturing and within auto manufacturing, 90% of robots either did welding or painting. Like that's it. Like that was the market. And so naturally like some companies emerged that were really good at building robots that did that. Uh, They really, they built distribution channels to allow them to sell the robots to the people who needed that. And uh, you know, like that—that that business worked really well. But a lot of those f- foundational assumptions are changing. Like you said, with software-defined kind of like robot with robots that are more intelligent and adaptive, with hardware costs dropping really quickly. You know, like most of the components that go into my smartphone are basically the same components that go into a robot. Like it's cameras, it's chips, it's sensors. Uh, the only difference is you have some motors and grippers. But like that's pretty minimal in terms of the cost of the system. Chris Anderson talks about like the peacetime dividends of the smartphone war, right, being applied into all of the different uh, types of smart hardware. And I think that plus, you know, I I guess I will call it like the peacetime dividends of the uh, self-driving car war, right? Because like all these people invested billions and billions of dollars into self-driving cars. Uh, And as a result of that, like we got... Way better, you know, motion planning software, and way better, you know, edge processing chips, and way better lidar, and way like all these things started to improve drastically, uh, and those things are all going to pay dividends when it comes to robotics. We're going to use those to, you know, and not we. I mean, other people are, lots of people are going to build use those to build much much better robots, um, and so I think the relative differentiation between the hardware vendors of uh, on the robot side is going down, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more specialization. Uh, people building robots that are you know, specialized in a specific type of task. And uh, I, I'm excited about that because I think it means robots will
2: get better for everybody. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And it is incredible. You know, the cost declines, as you're saying, the cost declines for the hardware for robotics is pretty pretty dramatic. So, you know, definitely opening up the door to manufacturers that are not, you know, producing high volume High-priced items now have the ability to actually automate from a investment standpoint.
0: Yeah, and I think on the on the other side, you know, I think a lot of the robot manufacturers will see some margin compression because uh, they're all using you know very similar hardware and similar components, and it's going to be hard to charge outsized you know prices on your robots, unless you have some meaningful differentiation. And in some cases we have that, like I think like like FANUC is an example of a company that has a fantastic service network, fantastic maintenance network, fantastic integrations. And so they're able to uh, get a really good premium on their robots that they sell because uh, it's easier, like your life is easier if you use a FANUC robot. And I think uh, we'll see that people will have to build similar capabilities in other
2: applications too. And then as we're winding down here, the question that everyone asks me anytime, anytime you say automation or robot, you get this question, and you're, you've you've got firsthand experience. Um, are robots stealing and destroying jobs? Uh, you probably have a better answer than I do on that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think the 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 data shows a very clear answer to that. You know, it's it's very very clearly no. Organizations that implement robots see over time increased demand for humans. Uh, countries that implement robots see over time increased demand for humans. Right, so I think it's it's directly correlated, and it creates opportunity. So, uh, like the example that I gave about you know factories that go from a two shift operation to a three shift operation are a great example. All of a sudden, as they go from a, you know one shift to a three shift operation, they need more marketing people, more salespeople, they need more delivery drivers, they need a hundred different things. So I think overall, like this is uh really, really uh, it unlocks human potential. The other thing that, that is really clear to everybody that's in the manufacturing industry is that these jobs that robots are doing are not jobs that people want. Like every factory that we go to has 30, 40% unfilled heads. You know, they pay giant bonuses for anybody to sign up to take one of these jobs and nobody wants them. A lot of these factories have 200% annual turnover. So that means they hire for the same job twice a year. It's very, very, very clear that like humans are not interested in these jobs and you have to like cajole them and pay them uh, lots of money to come and do them and and then they don't stay. Uh, So I think, uh, you know, robots are necessary for us to see the kind of, you know, raising of the waterline for everybody that we wanna see. But, you know, I I think that's kind of my first time experience. I'm curious if you've seen, uh, you know, other other stories or other versions of that.
2: Yeah, I I mean, what you said is true from what we've seen. I always like to think it's amazing that without automation at the base level, like 70% of us would need to be working in agriculture, right? So it's like you need efficiency. All right. So then it's like we started using animals. And then, okay, now you have some people that can go and they can start doing other things. And then you get a tractor and you get more and more people. And so it's like this, at the very base level, it's like automation frees us to do other exciting things that push civilization forward. And then the other big trend that we see is automation takes non-market activity and puts it into the market. And so... You know, pre-tractor is like, you know, you always see the statistics of this percent of the population worked in agriculture. Now this does. And it's like the majority of the people who stopped working on farms because of the tractor were unpaid family members. Right. So you're taking this huge. Non-market activity, and then all of those people are free to enter the market. And we think, you know, something similar is going to happen with autonomous vehicles, if you think about it. Right now, there's anyone who's got a license and is not a truck driver or a taxi driver or an Uber or Lyft driver is an unpaid participant in the market, right? Like we waste, you know, all of us like 30 minutes a day driving and no one's paying us to drive. And as soon as you get an autonomous vehicle, every one of those people is now going to pay for that service. So you're taking this non-market activity, you're bringing it into the market. Same thing with food service automation, right? No one pays us to clean up after ourselves at home or to go get groceries, but if automation makes it economic enough, then we'll pay for that service. So there's this uh, really interesting dynamic at play uh, from that angle. That's
0: cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's really interesting.
2: Last question from me here is, you know, what excites you the most in the next five years and or, or if you'd like to wager a prediction for the next five years in robotics and automation.
0: I am really excited for the AI aspect of robotics. Like you said, right now we haven't seen a world where AI plays a really meaningful component of robots that are deployed in the real world. Like There's a lot of really cool academic stuff that's going on, a lot of cool research things that are going on, but I'm really excited for um, the time that I think will come in the next five years where you can uh, use natural language or maybe some, you know, gestures to just explain to a robot what you want it to do and see it follow your instructions, basically. Um, And I think there's a few things that have started to enable that. I mean, you've seen with GPT-3 and like uh, OpenAI's um, Copilot, or what's it called? Yeah. For for programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can describe the program that you want. It it writes the program for you. Uh, I think those types of tools are getting so much better so quickly uh, that they're going to enable us to you know with just normal human interaction instruct a robot on on our needs and see it kind of execute that and then we can give it correction. We can say, hey, actually, don't pick it up. You know, don't pick up my cup this way. Pick it up the other way and uh it'll start to execute on that. And so uh that's something I'm really excited to see. I think we're very very close to that closer than most people realize. Um and uh you know I think that's going to be a sea change for for
2: for for robotics app- applications. Well, we're excited to see it happening. Is there anything I didn't ask you that, you know, the people must know? No, I don't think so. Um you know, check out our company,
0: www.formic.co <laughs> Uh if you know anybody who needs a robot. Uh and uh that's that's the only thing I can think of.
2: And and how do we follow you? you know we were we ran into each other on on Twitter. How, how do people follow along?
0: Yeah, follow us on Twitter, follow us on LinkedIn. Um look
2: forward to uh uh look forward to hearing from all of you. Great. Thank you, Simon, so much for joining us today.